Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and friendly neighborhood autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week, we're going back to one of our personal favorite shows, CSI Miami, and watching Season 1, Episode 15, titled Dead Woman Walking. This episode's all about radiation and chemistry, so let's get right into it. We open on a bunch of couples stumbling out of a nightclub. They're clearly drunk, and we see a man on the sidewalk. He starts to follow them, but when he cuts around a corner, he sees a police car, so then he goes into a parking lot and starts looking in cars before he sees another man and yells at him to get over here, and then he starts chasing the man. A strange man yelled, hey, get over here, me on the street. I'm going to also run in the opposite direction. (laughs) Like... I was like, what was he expecting? A stranger to just be like, oh, yeah, sure, man. Like, what do you need? Yeah, what do you need? (laughs) In the middle of the night in this weird parking lot. We then cut to the guy that was yelling and chasing this man, and he's dead on the ground the next day, with the scene being investigated by CSI Horatio Kane. Horatio! (laughs) Sorry. He's accompanied by a fellow detective. The iconic Horatio. I I love him so much. He didn't have... Like, the sunglasses moment, oh. which I was so hoping for. Damn. He did have some crazy moments in this episode, though. <laughs> the detective says it looks like a decade of skag and skin popping. So, skin popping is a method of injecting drugs, particularly opiates, cocaine, and barbiturates into the dermis, which is your skin, or subcutaneous tissue, which is a fancy way of saying under the skin, with the goal of achieving slower absorption decreased risk of overdose or easier administration than with other intravenous drug administration. But Horatio says it's not an OD because there's no foam around the mouth and nose. Which, you don't always get a foam cone. Yeah. And that's what he's referring to. Like, you don't... That's not in every single overdose. I thought that too. Like, he immediately ruled out overdose just after not seeing a foam cone. And I'm like... Like, I can't tell you how many times we've had overdoses and, like... Seven out of ten, there's no foam cone. There's also cases where sometimes there is a foam cone, but it's not an overdose. Like Yeah, like a seizure. Yeah, pulmonary edema happens in other things other than overdoses, but it is seen in some overdoses, just not always. But he immediately ruled it out. He's like, nope, not it. There's no foam cone. I just, I just know they wanted to say foam or like bring up yeah. foam. In- Somebody read it in a forensics book. They are CSIs. They're not autopsy techs or True. medical examiners, so they... Should not be the ones to rule out an overdose. He could say, like, oh, it doesn't look like an overdose, but we'll see an autopsy. But he was like, nope, not it. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> so he is referring to a foam cone, which can be seen in certain overdose cases. And it's called by what Alice said, pulmonary edema, which is fluid in your lungs. Pulmonary edema is caused in opioid deaths because it can cause histamine release, which dilates the vessels, prolonged hypoxia which just means there's not enough oxygen, and acidosis, which means there is too much acid in body fluids. Opioids will also cause respiratory depression, and all of these factors combined will lead to an increase in vasopermeability, which is the permeability of your blood vessels, so basically opioids make it easier for fluid to permeate or travel through the vessel walls. When foam cones and heavier lungs are seen in many overdoses, sometimes the drug 
can act to kill a person so quickly that you don't see those signs at autopsy or a scene, so you have to wait for all the docs to come back. Yeah, that's like your definitive. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Okay, this was. I mean, yeah, you always wait for talks to come back in an overdose. Yeah, but you can. It is crazy how if there is pulmonary edema in certain cases, how heavy the lungs can get because of all the fluid. Yeah, but yeah, sometimes some drugs are so fast acting that there's not even time for all of that to happen. It can just stop a person's heart before all that can happen so you wouldn't get the heavy lungs or the foam cone. While Horatio does bring up a good point, the absence of a foam cone doesn't necessarily rule out a possible overdose, clearly. However, he also finds a syringe on scene with no blood in it, and it's also 10cc, which is cubic centimeters, while most syringes used in drug overdoses are around 1cc. So this looks like it's staged. Horatio thinks this man was murdered. Other members of the CSI team arrive, and the detective tells them the victim's name is Carl Aspen. He has a long record of possession charges and assault and battery. The pathologist at the scene says it looks like he was beaten this time. He has lacerations on his head and lip. She also noted that it looked like a few of his nails were torn, so she bagged them in a brown paper evidence bag to preserve possible trace evidence, which we will give a green flag to. They roll the body over and we find a wad of damp cash. Horatio thinks the dampness can be from whatever liquid was in the syringe. There's $203, so that rolls out money as a motive for this murder. The ME notes there's no corneal clouding and places the time of death at about an hour to two hours ago. So according to NCIB, corneal clouding, which is when someone's eyes start to get cloudy and opaque, almost like a grayish looking color, this starts at approximately two hours after death. Horatio thinks that Carl was looking to get drugs and tried to jump someone, but jumped the wrong guy and ended up getting killed. They find a pencil at the scene and notice that it's chewed up, so it has teeth marks. They photograph the pencil as is with an L-shaped ruler for scale before picking it up, which we do give another green flag to. So this is a standard ABFO ruler. It's the American Board of Forensic Odontology. There's L rulers. There's just straight rulers. There's a whole bunch. And this became a standard to use when photographing bite mark evidence. We don't always use the L-shaped rulers. We mostly use them for gunshot wounds or if we're taking pictures of certain bruises. But we always have a scaler or a ruler of some length in our photos. Other like instances when we would use an L-shape is like a laceration or a stab wound. This is to scale how thick or long the wound is. Yeah, you can get like two measurements from like the side and along the bottom. I'm making a little L to Jess <laughs> on our Zoom call. <laughs> so the ruler that we always use is six centimeters long for, for reference. So Horatio wants the pencil tested for saliva and epithelial cells. At the autopsy, we see the ME collecting urine with a giant syringe. I've never seen a syringe this massive. I mean, we've used like, I think the largest we've used is like 60 yeah. cc's. This is like, this it is was like 100. It was comical because she got like such a tiny amount of urine. <laughs> she could have used easily a 10 cc. A 10 cc, even just like, I, you'll use the longer syringe also if you're just trying to get it without opening the person trying to get the Mm -hmm. urine but like this is like a comically long needle and syringe it was just it was insane really putting out the point there that she's an emmy and she's using needles i'm a doctor (laughs) whips out a giant (laughs) look at my needle giant syringe (laughs) 
She asks the tech to screen the urine for opiates. She also thinks that she already found the cause of death before even opening him. They had x-rayed him beforehand, and it looks like he had a cervical fracture, which is just a broken neck. They're about to test under his nails for skin. However, when they pull his hands out of the bag, the skin on the dorsal, which is the top surface of your hand, looks almost like it's melted away. This isn't how it looked at the scene, and Horatio is wondering if there's some type of parasite happening, and the Emmy says she's never seen anything like this, and although it looks like it could have been a chemical burn, a chemical burn would have presented immediately. Just then, Horatio realizes that it's radiation. He hits an alarm button at the lab and tells everyone to evacuate, and they also need to notify anyone who was at the scene because they may have been exposed. We called in some reinforcements when all of this radiation talk was happening. So Alice's boyfriend, Costa, hi, Costa. He's our podcast radio chemistry resource. He has his PhD in medicinal chemistry, and he's currently a postdoc fellow in radio chemistry. So he for sure knows his stuff. He's a fellow. He's a little fellow. He's a little fellow in radio chemistry. Yeah, I kept running in to ask him questions. He was like, <laughs> he was do- he was doing great. He was like writing one of his papers like he's like writing research on radiochemistry and I'm watching freaking CSI in the other room and I keep running in and I'm like hey 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 tell me about this isotope and he's like he loved it though he was very excited <laughs> so Costa said that radiation can cause skin damage like that if directly injected into a person but he also said that whoever was handling the radioactive material to inject it into someone else would get some damage or maybe even die too so I guess we gotta Stay tuned for what happens. No spoilers yet. (laughs) So the RM, or the Radioactive Management Team, comes into the morgue after Horatio and the ME clear it and use a Geiger counter to detect radioactivity levels. They say the source is the decedent's hand. Wow. Shocker. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We had no idea. (laughs) And they use something called a serobend to absorb the radiation at the source. Kosa said he has never used a serobend, but when we looked it up, it's an alloy, which is a mixture of metals, and one of the metals was lead, which Kosa says he has used in his research to carry radioactive materials in a safe way because it absorbs the radiation. While the RMs come in the ME explains in layman's terms what radiation basically is, she says, quote, too many neutrons destabilize the atom, all the atoms rip apart and release energy. The Emmy and Horatio are scrubbed down by the RM team and come back clean. They say the CDC needs to quarantine the scene so it can be tested for radiation as well. They need to contain the contaminated evidence and clear the dirty air in the morgue. The RM says they will find out if it's nuclear, medicinal, or came right out of the ground. Horatio asks the RM if you can administer radioactive material via syringe, and the RM says radiation therapy for cancer patients attacks tumors. The radioactive isotope wouldn't glow or anything, so the decedent may have mistaken it for drugs. And we see a flashback. This man took the syringe out of a person's backpack, and like he pushed the syringe up like how you would push out the air in it, and some of the liquid squirted out on top of his hand. So I consulted Costa with this, which I did for like many points in this episode whenever they brought up chemistry. And Costa said that he would need to know... So at this point, we don't know what the radiation is. We don't know what isotope it is. So Kelsey says he would need more details to know if it would cause that extensive tissue damage, but he said if it was strong enough 
He says, if they're, it's as strong as they're making it seem in the show, whoever owned this backpack would have to have had so much radiation just floating around in a backpack that they're probably also sick. And he said that radioisotopes are highly regulated and aren't things that you can just, like, make on your own or order online. Well, I mean, he can probably make some because he's actually a radiochemist, but, like, not something somebody can, like, Google, like, how to make the thing. <laughs> One of the CSIs that was at the scene is being tested for radiation and his colleagues are off to the side discussing different levels of radiation. One of them says that alpha particles are like pencil marks on the skin, which will wash right off. Beta particles are like pen on skin, harder to wash off, but can still come off. And gamma particles will just destroy and go right through you. So Coast, I made Costa watch this scene and he like didn't love this analogy because it kind of made beta and alpha particles seem like harmless but alpha and beta particles are used in radiation therapy and therefore aren't harmless but he did agree that gamma is the one that will tear right through you and just keep going that's like what Costa said (laughs) Horatio guesses that the victim jumped someone delivering radio pharmaceuticals the RM says that any trained delivery guy would have handed over the package and then notified nuclear regulatory commissions so they wouldn't have tried to like fight this guy over what they were carrying. They're trained to just hand over what they're doing, what they have, and then call someone to report it. So they hadn't heard from the NRC about any stolen radio pharmaceuticals, so they think that the man with the backpack and supposed murderer is someone who stole a radioactive isotope. So Costa also rolled his eyes at this. He's like, oh yeah, they're stealing radioisotopes. <laughs> they think that whoever did steal the radioactive isotope was doing it for maybe some kind of terrorist attack. But Horatio thinks that the doses are too low for that. They check the money they found at the scene and it comes back with the isotope being iodine-131 at the end of its half-life, which is about eight days. The RM says that this is low-level radiation and that the people at the scene should be all right. So this is like, was like really getting agitated. He says that if the radioactivity was enough to cause extensive tissue damage on someone's hand, that's literally not low-level radiation. So they're just kind of contradicting themselves in the show. But I mean, someone like me, if I didn't have Kosa sitting next to me, I wouldn't have known. Right? Like, I was watching this and I wasn't reading your notes at first. And I was like, oh, yeah, it makes total sense. Duh. And then I was like, oh, it actually doesn't make sense. It took me so long to get through this episode because, like I said, Kosta was doing work in the other room. I was doing podcast work in one room. And I kept pausing it and, like, running in the other room. And I'm like, can you just give me a quick crash course on what this is? <laughs> and he's, Ghost is the best. He did it. He loved that he was being consulted. And I told him he's going to get a lot of shout outs this episode because it was basically all radio chemistry. Yeah. So he also brought up again that whoever was transporting this in just a regular backpack and not a lead lined case, which he told me they call it a quote pig, which I think is cute. That's adorable. <laughs> Would be very sick. Like he's like, whenever we have to transport it, like their little lead line bag is called like a pig. Like you have to get a pig to carry it. <laughs> to quote Costa, he at this point says, I have a lot of issues with this episode. You and me both. I said that I was like, now you know how I feel whenever I watch these shows. And I'm just like, that's not what an autopsy's like. <laughs> so I'm just going to give like a blanket red flag for just a lot of botched explanation of radiochemistry here. So the RM is going to test the pencil they found at the scene to see if it's safe. The CSI that handled the money at the scene is told that the radiation exposure is the equivalent to what a pilot flying to Paris would experience. So basically he's fine. He just didn't go to Paris, which would have been cooler. When he expresses concern about, quote, temporary infertility, one of the RM hands the guy a device that will beep when he's near radiation. 
Horatio, after the pencil was deemed safe, I guess, is examining the pencil and he finds an inscription on it that reads B. King, which led them to a woman named Belle King, who is an attorney that specializes in environmental law. Horatio and one of the techs and a detective go to her office. They have a warrant to search her office, and she says whatever they're looking for would be covered by attorney-client privilege. Horatio says that they are CSI and aren't interested in her clients. Bella King stands up to take the warrant and says that she wants to call the judge that issued it, and just then, the tech's buzzer that the RM had given him to detect radiation goes off like crazy. And he moves it closer to Bell King, and it gets louder the closer it gets to her. So they call the RM team, and they say that the levels in Bell's office and home are 10 times higher than the levels at the lab. They take Bell King to the hospital to be tested and learn that she has less than one week to live, and that she, but she isn't contagious. Her, her radiation isn't contagious. Horatio says that they can handle the money from the scene now because it's safe to touch. He also wants to search Bell's home and says that iodine-131 decays to normal iodine, so that's what they look for. They should be looking for. Cue Costa yelling from, like, the other room, red flag, because this isn't true. Iodine-131 decays to a stable xenon-131. It doesn't even decay to iodine. So Horatio and the other CSI go on to say that in order to look for iodine, they need sulfur to react with it. So they're adding sulfur to their kits. Cue another groan from Costa and him giving another red flag because he just he just thought that, that was such a weird thing to say, like such a weird blanket statement to say like, oh, he's like, when I hear iodine, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm not going to be like, oh, I need sulfur to react with it. He's like, that's that's not what you would do. So uh yeah, he just gives a red flag for, for this whole thing. We're going to give two red flags for the sulfur and one for the iodine, because iodine wouldn't even be there. So Horatio goes in to talk to Belle, and she says that because he isn't wearing a lead-lined suit, she must be all better. He then breaks the news, news to her. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing during this part. It's just crazy that Horatio is the one delivering this news to this woman that he met like an hour ago. <laughs> I feel like a doctor should be giving you the life and death news. Why did he know before her? He is no one to her. <laughs> and the doctors told He is nobody. He's just an investigator. He's not like next of kin or anything. He breaks the news to her that she ingested iodine-131 and not just a little bit, but an amount that would be given to four cancer patients during a six-month period. So like, he should not be the one who met this. He met her a few hours right? ago. He should not be the one giving her the news that she's dying. Whoever took her x-rays or something, did like the, the workup on her, they need to be the one to give her this deathly, deathly news. What happened to HIPAA? Like, he doesn't... Seriously. Like, why did he know one before her or before any of her family? I don't know if it's because he's law enforcement and they're doing an investigation and he needs to know what's going on with the scene he was investigating and she's part of the scene. I don't know if that plays any role. It just... It felt so wrong that he's the one. I know he's the main character in the show, so they're going to put him in every scene. He needs all of the screen time. But this just goes so far beyond. Like, we always talk about people doing other people's jobs in these shows. This guy was doing... He took it to another level. He was doing the doctor's job. The doctor should have had a discussion with her about her prognosis. (laughs) Not a random CSI. Not a CSI who just met her, like, an hour ago. (laughs) So Horatio says that they think she was poisoned and that she only has a week to live. 
So the show shoots like an image of what it looks like in Belle's organs, like typical CSI fashion. They do like side note. Cutaways these are my favorite types of scenes in CSI. True. Oh, I forgot to mention, like, we forgot to mention they did one when they were explaining what radiation was. They, like, zoomed in on the hand and you saw, like, all the cells. Oh, my God. It was so funny. So they zoom in on, like, Belle and you see, like, her organs. And they they zoom in on what I'm assuming is her thyroid. I actually had to pause it a few times because I thought they were trying to zoom in on her heart. And it was so dark. I, like... (laughs) could tell what they were looking at yeah it was really dark but based on the location that they zoomed in i think it was her thyroid because it was around her throat it makes sense yeah and i can only assume it's that's because iodine is very important in making thyroid hormones thyroxine and triidothyronine thyronine i always said that one wrong they assist in protein and enzyme activity so iodine is going to go to your thyroid because it's very important for the metabolism of different hormones there so her thyroid was probably negatively effective by the excessive amounts of iodine that she ingested, or so the show says. Your thyroid is very important, so that's why you also always wear, like, the thyroid collar when you do x-rays. That's true. You always protect your thyroid when, like, whenever we have to do x-rays for anything, we wear our lead vests, and we have, like, a little lead collar that goes, like, under mm-hmm. our chin all around our neck to protect our thyroid. Yeah, you don't want that messed up. So who would want to do this to Belle? He needs a list of her clients and any companies she filed suit against. And Belle has a long list of enemies because of her job. And she says she met with a company, Twin Peaks, yesterday. And she sued them for plume contamination. And they hate her, but they didn't bring her any food or drink. But she had coffee at her next meeting with a nuclear weapons facility called Elkwood. But they didn't bring her coffee or anything. They didn't give her anything to drink. And right before lunch, she met with Reicher Pharmaceuticals, who is responsible for unsafe disposal, misplaced isotopes, ringing bells, misplaced isotopes, and confusing isotopes so patients are injected with the wrong dosages. So these sound like bad guys to me. And she had no meals or any drinks at that meeting. Belle does a lot of pro bono work, and her assistant can't understand why anybody would do this to her, and the CSI questioning her assistant tries to open a filing cabinet, but it's locked, and the assistant says that it's her personal stuff and seems hesitant to unlock it for him. She eventually does, though, and he finds a heart-shaped box filled with photo cartridges and digital cameras. Back at Belle's home, Horatio accompanies her to investigate her house. The RM team is there first making sure it's safe. And any iodine-131 that was in there lost all its potency so they can let the CSIs in safely. There's no signs of iodine anywhere so far because there wouldn't be any iodine there to begin with. Just kidding. But (laughs) Horatio notices that Belle collects hourglasses and she like sadly flips one over that like has it's like five days worth of sand and that's basically how much she has left to live. (laughs) I was like, wow, you're really counting down the days. Literally. so emo it's like oh no it's so sad he also notices flowers that were sent from an anonymous friend and Belle says that sometimes people like to thank her anonymously which she'll take over all of the hate mail she gets Horatio notices a note from someone named Sam Carver and Belle says that he's an angry father who's angry at the world and not her but the letter says if you ever try to contact us again, I will kill you, and that's a promise. I, like, I can never get over when these people, I mean, usually the people who are about to be murdered don't get to have a say in it, in, like, talking to investigators, but usually when, like, they're talking to families or anything, they'll be like, did they have any enemies? And it's like, no, 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 except for the one guy that sent me the letter that says, I want to kill you, and that's a promise. <laughs> like, they always forget that guy. So, this was written 
after this man's oldest son died, and she says that they have talked things through since and worked everything out. His wife, Janet, even brings her fresh orange juice a lot to celebrate the new clean water. Horatio asks if she brought juice yesterday, and she says she did. They test the remaining orange juice and find that it is positive for iodine. So Horatio calls in Sam and Janet to interrogate them and asks why they still have hard feelings for Belle if she helped them win their class action lawsuit. Janet says there aren't any hard feelings, and Horatio reads them the threatening letter that Sam wrote to Belle. Sam says that Belle dragged her feet on the case waiting for more money, and while they were stuck waiting, their oldest son died. They could have used an early settlement to move. So back at the lab, they find a small puncture near the top of the bottle where someone injected the isotope, and Horatio doesn't think that Sam Carver injected it, but that it was someone else, someone who knows their way around a syringe. Another tech is looking at the money found at the scene and found several prints, but there's no hits on APHIS, but he did find something else. There are numbers imprinted from a bank card on it, so they might be able to trace it back to someone's personal credit card to find what wallet it came from. It belonged to a George Reicher, CEO of Reicher Pharmaceuticals, who Bell has a lawsuit against for contaminating groundwater. Horatio and the detective go to question George Reicher at his office, which is three blocks from where Carl was murdered. Horatio notices the door has a new lock, and it looks like someone sprayed Freon to break the lock internally. He thinks George may have staged a break-in to cover up why iodine-131 from his facility was used to murder Bell. They found a footprint from a heavy lead shoe on the floor of where they keep their syringes of iodine-131, and Horatio asks why money from George's wallet was found on a dead mugger who has been exposed to the isotype, and he said that was probably the person who broke in. George also says that Bill didn't have a solid piece of evidence against him. They test the residue that made the boot print on the floor of the lab in Reicher's pharmaceuticals and see that it's consistent with chicken dung. Belle keeps chickens, so they hypothesize that someone went to Belle's house to contaminate her OJ and then tracked chicken dung back to the pharma company. Meanwhile, another CSI is looking through the film cartridges found on Belle's office, and he develops the photos in a dark room. He finds photos of Reicher's lab and lab documents in night vision. They then guess that Belle broke in, took those photos, and she was the one to track the chicken dung into the lab. Could she be the one to steal the radioactive isotope? Did she want to test it, or did she want to kill herself to be some type of martyr for her cause? That's That would be insane. That would be next level. I'm going to inject myself with radioisotope. Just to prove a point. So Horatio doesn't agree and thinks they're missing something. He goes to see Belle and takes some of her shoes for evidence. She says she wouldn't break into Reicher's pharma company because she could never win a case with illegal documents, and she also says that she isn't brave enough. She says she has someone she can't give up who took those photos that are helping her get the bad guys. Back at the lab, they test Belle's shoes, and they don't match the print at the scene. They look at the night vision photos again and see a levered deadbolt on one of the doors, different from the locks they saw earlier, and no sign of Freon used to break in. So whoever took those photos didn't break in to do it. Someone let her in. So Belle has someone working for her on the inside, they sent the camera found at Belle's office for fingerprints, and Horatio goes to confront Belle about her source inside Reicher, and she says she wouldn't do this to her, and if Horatio exposes her source, all her evidence will be inadmissible and will ruin her case against Reicher. 
She says even if he did poison her, she is one life and there are so many lives that would be lost if she loses the case against Reicher Pharmaceuticals. They didn't get any prints on the camera, but noticed the lens was set to be ideal for someone who's far-sighted, and Belle is near-sighted, so it wouldn't be her camera. They're going to get a list of employees at Reicher and narrow it down to far-sighted employees. But like, can you do that? Do they? Does this company have a whole list of people who are near and far-sighted? I feel like that's so strange. Does our comp- does does our work have? that I have an astigmatism. <laughs> was that in all the new employee hire paperwork? I mean, I just recently found out I have astigmatism. So did they know before me? Was I on a list? Am I on a list now? Do they know I don't wear the glasses I'm prescribed? <laughs> <laughs> like, I was I was wondering that too. They're like, we're going to, they just said it like, we're going to narrow it down to farsighted employees. I was like, like, is this a normal question that is asked at the company? That's so weird. I guess if they like really deeply dug, like, I, could they look into like if they use like their vision insurance and like what their glasses prescription is but i feel like that would take so long and that's do they have a single dedicated person to do this (laughs) i have one person who's like all right it's your job to look up all these people insurances and see which one's nearsighted and which one's farsighted (laughs) report back your findings so back at the morgue, they cut the serobend mold around the hand to try and get epithelial cells from under his fingernails. They didn't even try to get from the other hand that wasn't exposed to radiation and encased in alloy. I thought the same thing. I was like, why? We don't even see them look at the other hand. They pay no attention. It's like he doesn't even have it. They're like, it has to be this hand that's encased in metal and exposed to radiation we, they like saw they have to like saw the hand out of yeah the i'm like how are you gonna get any evidence but so the emmy says that it must have been quite a fight because he had a nice hunk of skin under the nails which i do give a green flag like when you fight and like you're scratching you can like see if someone has like skin under their nails after the fight they have a list of 14 employees at Reicher who are farsighted, and they're going to test everyone against the DNA that they got from under the nails. They get a match and go to arrest the receptionist at Reicher Pharmaceuticals. As they walk in to arrest him, he deletes a folder titled BK on his computer that contains photos of Belle at her home. They bring the receptionist named Parker to question about killing Carl. He says it was self-defense. Horatio says they'll be able to match his handwriting from his work papers to the handwriting on the flowers that Belle received, and he asks if Parker had feelings for her. He says that Belle tricked him into doing things for her and pretended to like him to get what she wanted. He told her how he felt, but he said she only cared about sick people. He says he loved her. That bitch. <laughs> how dare she? She has all this pro bono some... shit. She only cares about <laughs> sick people. Thank God. <laughs> He says he loved her, and he thought if she were dead, that he could forget about her. There's better ways. He is not well, clearly. Uh, yeah. He's unwell. He's, like, they showed, like, a clip, like, as he's, like, she tricked, she tricked, or, like, she tricked me, because, like, she pretended to like me, and it was just her, like, having, like, a conversation <laughs> with him. And I think she might have, like, gave him a kiss on the cheek or something. Yeah, they were, like, like oh, having coffee. She tricked me. <laughs> it's like, nope. You just read too much into it, my guy. So Horatio goes to visit Belle one last time and tells her that he got a warrant to search Reicher Pharmaceuticals and he's going to use the evidence he found to prove in court that Belle was right and the company was dumping waste. 
Belle tells Horatio to tell the world and thanks him. And that's how this episode of CSI Miami ends. I also like, like, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at any of this. It's all terrible. <laughs> but, like, Horatio's sitting at her bedside. Like, she's dying. There's no <laughs> one else there. Where's her family? Early, she said earlier she had family that she was going to call. And, like, none of them are there. And it's just this one guy she met a week ago. <laughs> He's her family. La Familia. She's, <laughs> she just really wanted to be with Horatio and his sunglasses in her last moments like i can't (laughs) i just couldn't wrap my head around that relationship that like bloomed during this episode i was like it was beautiful it was beautiful (laughs) too bad it has to end (laughs) (laughs) does end tragically yeah so (laughs) my fbi agent probably at another field day this week because i was googling suspicious things like radiation murders and how how quickly different isotopes would kill someone. <laughs> so I'm definitely on a list somewhere. Unless, you know, actually, I bet you my FBI agent's good. And I bet you they know that I have a podcast with you. And that I'm doing research. Right? They probably looked you up. They, they're probably fans. They're probably listening right now. Hi, guys. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so one interesting case I found that ties back to our episode was a case from 2001. A man in Germany was convicted of attempting to poison his ex-wife with plutonium stolen from W-A-K. And these letters stand for something in German. (laughs) There's no way I'm going to be able to pronounce. (laughs) In our notes page, it's just a whole bunch of letters. And it's like 20 of them in a row. And I can't make out any of that. I'm going to try. And it's going to be comical. Everybody hang out, hang in there. It's going to be painful. <laughs> Hold on to your socks. Whiter off Barrett's tongue sanglage. Carl Schur. <laughs> that's W-A-K. So that's a small scale processing plant that this man worked at. He didn't steal a lot of plutonium. He just stole some rags that were used for wiping surfaces down and a small amount of liquid waste. However, this was enough to contaminate two other people, as well as their two apartments. And all these apartments had to be decontaminated and cleaned at the cost of 2 million euro. And this one was weird because that's literally all the information I could find on it. I googled, I tried to google, I googled the name of the plant and all this stuff and it gave me like the same blurb. And it's it's always like an unnamed man or this person and it's... The phrasing was slightly different, but it's basically all the same. Like this little blurb over and over again is what I found. So yeah, this is all the basic information I have for this case. And I just know he didn't end up killing his ex-wife. I think she might have been one of the people that was contaminated. Or I think she and two other people were contaminated with plutonium, but nobody nobody passed away, but he was convicted. I don't know what his sentencing was. Couldn't find a lot of information. Because that story was so short, we thought we would also mention something else relating back to the episode. An environmental attorney taking down a corrupt facility for endangering and polluting a community. So Robert Billot started out as a lawyer working for corporate clients for eight years, and he actually started out primarily defending chemical corporations. However, in 1999, Billot represented Wilbur Tennant of Parkersburg, West Virginia. Tennant was a farmer and his cattle had been dying and his farm was downstream from a landfill that the chemical plant DuPont had been dumping tons of oh my god we have another word that I'm not gonna be able to pronounce perfluorooctanic 
prefluorooctanic acid. In the summer of 1999, Billot filed a lawsuit against the chemical company in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of West Virginia. In response to the lawsuit, DuPont agreed to commission a study alongside the United States Environmental Protection Agency, where DuPont would hire three veterinarians of their choosing, and the EPA would hire three veterinarians of their choosing, and all the vets would inspect the cows at Tennis Farm. And the reports of the study concluded that, quote, poor nutrition, inadequate veterinary care, and lack of fly control were the cause of tenants' sick and dying cattle. But after Robert Billot discovered thousands of tons of waste being dumped into the landfill near tenants' property by DuPont, and also discovering that water supply in the surrounding communities was contaminated, DuPont settled tenants' lawsuit. So in 2001, Billot filed an, a class action lawsuit against DuPont on behalf of 70,000 people in West Virginia and Ohio whose water had been contaminated with PFOA, which is the chemical that I just butchered the pronunciation of before. We're just going to call it PFOA from now on. <laughs> so this lawsuit was settled in September 2004 with class benefits of over $300 million, including DuPont agreeing to install filtration plants in six areas that were affected and dozens of impacted private wells, and a cash reward of $70 million, and provisions for future medical monitoring to be paid by DuPont up to $235 million if an independent science panel confirmed, quote, probable links between PFOA in the drinking water and the person's disease. After the independent scientific panel jointly selected by the parties, but required under the settlement to be paid for by DuPont, found that there was a probable link between the drinking PFO water and kidney cancer, testicular cancer, thyroid disease, high cholesterol, preeclampsia, and ulcerative colitis, Billot began opening individual personal injury lawsuits against DuPont on behalf of the affected users of the Ohio and West Virginia water supplies, which by 2015 numbered over 3,500. After losing the first three for $19.7 million, in 2017, DuPont agreed to settle the remainder of the then-pending cases for $671.7 million. Dozens of additional cases filed after the 2017 settlement were settled in 2021 for an additional $83 million and announced in conjunction with a $4 billion settlement between DuPont and its spinoff company, Chemours, over other liabilities. Bringing the total settlement value in personal injury cases for those exposed to PFOA in their drinking water to over $753 million. Holy shit. I just love that this guy, this lawyer, this amazing lawyer, he like used to defend the chemical companies and then he just took such a hard turn and was like, nope. <laughs> and he like owned them all, like owned not them all, but owned this one company that was messing up a lot of shit. I can't, I literally like can't wrap my head around how much money that settlement is. I just, I like all the people that were affected and- I know. I can't wrap my head around how long the, like he- first brought a suit against them in 1999 and they're still doing settlements as of 2021 they were like they settled for an additional 83 million dollars it's crazy and i've never heard of this me either but it causes so many diseases. i know it's oh man don't drink pfoa <laughs> don't don't drink that <laughs> don't do it guys i i found a, a lot of, yeah i found a lot of this info in a new york times article about robert 
the lot that I will link below as well as like a Wikipedia page about the case and same thing for the other like little blurb about the guy trying to kill his ex-wife and failing and like two sentence story that I could find. So to end this episode, we tallied a total of three green flags and three red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of CSI Miami gets a tie in terms of forensic accuracy, but maybe I lean more toward does not pass because of all the radiation that they got wrong. I'm going to say it fails radiochemistry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with any episode suggestions you may have. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.